Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. The last time we did an episode of this show with phone calls and no guests was December 30th. And here's what happened during the second half of the program. I think some of the choices this year are really good. I mean, they've, uh, whoa, just an alarm went off. (laughs) What else could happen? There's an alarm going off in the studio. Uh, Somebody needs to go investigate that. I think I have to stay on the air no matter what. Everybody else can flee. Uh, So so anyway, that's tomorrow. (laughs) If I'm... even if I'm not still alive. Um, oh, here comes Katie Tularski, the big boss. She'll be the one making the decisions about whether we evacuate or not. But you you can hear. You could probably hear in the background. <laughs> well, you're, you're the boss. Go investigate this. Call somebody. Find out whether we really have to leave or not. Um, <laughs> so anyway, that's happening. I mean, several things are happening. Uh, There's an alarm going off, and we're doing our jazz show tomorrow. Those are both um, things that are happening. So (laughs) I know I'm having a hard time concentrating, but I kind of want to see if I can rise to the challenge. What should we do? Should we go to a break? What do you think we should do? No, no, no. Keep going. Just keep going? Should I take a call? I'm going to take Lori's call, even though there are warnings of my imminent demise in the background. Um, Here's here's Lori from Gale's Ferry. Hi, Lori. You may be the last person I talk to in my life, but so make it a good phone call, okay? All right, so you're on the air, Lori. Go ahead. Oh, well, have we actually? Um, let me. Maybe she's afraid. All right. I don't think you can be actually endangered. What did Katie just tell you something more? All right. Um, <laughs> all right. I am going to try to figure out uh, what call to talk to. All right. I'll take Hank's call. I mean, I kind of asked for this, didn't I? All right. So here's Hank calling from North Haven. Hi, you're on the air. You know, it's possible that the phones don't work when our emergency things are going off. It's like another thing that's happening here. All right. So I'm not going to take Hank's call or Lori's call. Maybe we'll be. Should we just trigger a break here so we can kind of regroup and figure out, see if that works anyway. Let's play a break. We'll come back and we'll see what's going on. Now, it turns out it was nothing. By nothing, I mean that we rent space on the second floor to a defense contractor testing rage virus, and some of the chimps got loose and bit some people from the Connecticut Mirror and the World Affairs Council. The point is, well, actually, there are two points. One is that you should probably regard this as a negative example. If an alarm goes off in your building, you should definitely do what it says. The other is that this seemed like so much fun that we had to do it again. So here we go. The phone number is 888 Seven two zero nine six seven seven or eight 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 seven two zero WNPR and this guy'll explain the rest to you. Hey, Connecticut Mirror Rage Virus Zombie Person, get away from my stuff. <laughs> there are still a few Connecticut Mirror Rage Virus people. You know, I almost got PTSD listening to that. And and I have to tell you, there's one other part to this, which we covered up, and but I'll tell it to you now, which is we, we came back eventually. Eventually the alarm goes off. And these alarms, you know, they... 
they they reinvent them all the time. And so now they really are good at getting your attention. I mean, there's a light that flashes, too, almost like stroboscopically, you know, and then there's this robot voice and then there's this siren. And so we came back and I was on the air for a few minutes and suddenly I was having trouble catching my breath. Um, and I had to step out in the hall. Wolfie had to play some music. I had to step out in the hall, and I kind of composed myself, and I came back in. And there are two possible explanations. Gene Amatruda, who is the lord of all of this building, he's like an elf lord, um, he said that our air transfer system also shut down. So it could be that in this little booth I'm sitting in, there just wasn't enough air. But I think it's the other thing. I think that even though I was trying to be cheerful about this and, and, and confident about it, there was a part of my body— my friend Greg Butler told me there's a book called The Body Keeps Score. So you can decide that something is not affecting you, but your body is having like a different conversation. So I think my, it's very possible my body was seeing all that stuff, flashing lights and sirens and stuff and going, oh, no, we got to get out of here. I'm, we should be scared. Uh, so anyway, that's all that. That's all over. That's in the past. Uh, but uh, we do want to do, once again, all phone calls today. Let me give out. Well, let me set up a topic. That's a good place to start. And for all I know, the phones don't work today either. <laughs> we'll find out. But the Oscars came out, uh, Oscar nominations came out today. And, you know, Oscar nominations, Oscars in general, have had a problem. You, one could say for the entirety of their existence, but very especially over the last five years. About five years ago was the um, hashtag Oscars so white uh, controversy. So today the Oscar nominations come out. Now, I know that they've, A, tweaked their membership in order to try to correct for some of these problems. And and, and B, it, it's a vote. So you can't really put your thumb on the scale and make a certain outcome happen. But yet, you know, the story today, this morning when these nominations came out, is the story that's often the case. There were five male directors nominated. Greta Gerwig, who directed Little Women and might have been thought to have had a chance, was not nominated. Of the 20 possible Oscar nominations, Best Actor, Best Actress, and then the supporting equivalents of those, so that's 20. There's one black actor, um, uh, Cynthia Erivo from Harriet. Um, Lupita Nyong'o for Us, nope. Eddie Murphy for Dolomite is my name, nope. Uh, but anyway, so one black actor. Um, in, the, in the best supporting actor field of white men, I looked this up. There, so it's, it is. It's a field of white men, uh, which is different from Field of Dreams, by the way. That's a, those are two different movies. But uh, no, it was a group of white men. Their ages are, I mean, they're all really great actors. I'm not saying otherwise. But their ages are 82 that would be Anthony Hopkins, 79, uh, I think that's Al Pacino, 76 is Joe Pesci, 63 is Tom Hanks, 56 is Brad Pitt. So 50, the 56-year-old guy is the really young guy in this field. Um, and, you know, it has become so endemic to the Oscars that there's a woman named April Rain, who's the person who founded, started this Oscar So White movement. She's just sort of booked. I think she's pre-booked onto a lot of shows on this day every year and probably the day after the Oscars, too, uh, because they know that there's going to be some conversation like this one. And and I feel as though – now, you can – there's a lot of things you can say about this. And by the way, okay, I've established the topic enough. And I mean, whatever you want to say about the Oscar nominations, it doesn't – have to be exclusively about racial and gender inequities. Um, but uh, in any case, the number is 888-720-WNPR. 
This is our chance to find out whether the phones work. Uh, or 888-720-9677. That's, they're the same number, but it's like one of them is alphanumeric and the other one is just numeric. So 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. I'll be bringing up other topics as the day goes on. But, you know, this is kind of the new early morning fresh story. So uh, I wanted to talk about it a little bit. Now, could be argued. In fact, it has been argued on my Facebook page that these things don't matter. I mean, who cares? It's the Oscars. They don't matter. Except that they are part of a national conversation we have. First of all, if you care about movies, you know, they are a fulcrum for talking about movies. And if you care about other elements of culture, they're a fulcrum for that, too. Uh, They are a fulcrum for the kind of thing that I just brought up. Because all of this, our, our culture, our society, our life is shot through with this question. For example, there was a guy who was saying on my Facebook page today, well, I mean, Martin Scorsese is generally recognized as the greatest living director. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe, I guess maybe he is. On the other hand, for most of his career, he hasn't had to compete against any women for that honor. I mean, women were given precious few directing opportunities for most of Marty Scorsese's time, uh, and nor were people of color. So... Yeah, maybe he is the greatest living director. He's only 40% of the human race has been eligible to compete against him for that that laurel. Uh, and it's it's like that, you know? If things don't get disturbed, if they don't get questioned, then you wind up just kind of defending the same paradigm. You you wind up with a society where people like half the people spend their days questioning the paradigm, arguing the paradigm, and the other half of the people spend their days defending the paradigm. Uh, and there are a lot of people who say, well, you know what, this is just, this really is who was the best and, and or who was not the best. Um, and and I, I also understand and agree that it would be great just to have this conversation be about merit, right? Like who really was the best and not have conversations about whether people are equally represented, whether everybody has the same shot, whether everybody is similarly celebrated. But the problem is we can't just have these conversations about merit until we fix some of these problems. And I I think they are real problems that really exist. Um, One of the encouraging things for me is if I were about to give the – I mean I think there's sort of three pictures that have a pretty good chance to win Best Picture – um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, The Irishman, and then the one that I would give the award to, I think, if I had to do it tomorrow, and that's uh, Parasite. And Parasite, being the work of a South Korean director with an all-South Korean cast, um, the fact that it's in the running in this particular way, and it is also a movie that asks in its own way profound questions, in its own very exciting way, asks profound questions about inequalities. Uh, for the most part, economic equalities in South Korea, where they are even more pronounced than they are here. Uh, that's kind of cool, right? That I mean, I, I think Parasite, I haven't, I'm not one of these people who checks the odds all the time, but Parasite apparently has pretty good momentum and it's gaining ground and uh, it has a chance to be best picture. That would be a good thing. Um, and all right, so uh, let's start uh, the calls with, by the way, the phone number is 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. And here is Marge in Lebanon. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, yes, thank you. Um, you know, I'm, I hate to change the subject so early in your show, um, but I wanted, I have a question that, 
I never really understood in, in regards to the impeachment um, process why they never could force Mulvaney and Bolton to uh, reply to come in it, with a subpoena. I mean, isn't doesn't if an ordinary person refuses to come to for a because they're subpoenaed, don't they get arrested or something? I mean, how can they? You know, how can they possibly have been allowed to get away with not uh, testifying or answering questions? All right. So, Marge, I'm going to do two things here. One of them is I'm going to tell you I would really recommend that you start listening to our other show. You know, we have this other show that runs on Saturdays and runs as a podcast. It's called Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show. We do talk about this this very specific question. Almost in the way that you worded it has been addressed. I know in my conversation with Emily Bazelon on one of our six episodes, I asked her that exact question. If I didn't obey an, uh, a subpoena, I'd be in trouble, right? Now, there's a, if we have time and we veer away from the Oscars and I, we can maybe track back to this, because I was thinking towards the end of the show, I, I would get to that. Um, but um, so if we have the opportunity, we'll try to do that. Um, but I would just, you know, just in the, on the, in the off chance that people actually do want to talk about the Oscars here at the top, I'm going to sort of postpone that for a second or two. I didn't realize that that's what your question was. All right. Our number, 888-720-WNPR. Although I noticed Betsy Kaplan just got up and ran away from the phone bank. So I'm a little uh, anxious about that. Let me go back to what I was saying. All right. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's not, Unconnected. All of this is also not unconnected to the fact that the Oscars now um, no longer have a host, um, and um, and I think what are the re- well, actually, not only do they not only have a do they not have a host, but now that's become kind of a running joke here. Uh, I think we've got uh, a clip here of Tina Fey and Amy Poehler um, talking about that, and my oh, and Maya Rudolph too. That's right, they all came out together at the 2019 Oscars. Good evening, and welcome to the one millionth Academy Awards. We are not your hosts, but we're going to stand here a little too long so that the people who get USA Today tomorrow will think that we hosted. Are you right? Why is there no host? Because there isn't common consensus anymore uh, about how to talk about these things. So the Golden Globes, they have Ricky Gervais. He gets up there. Uh, he acts a little drunk. He approaches the whole thing with disdain. He says he doesn't care about it. Uh, and um, he um, he then hurls <laughs> amusing insults at them, but he also tells them that their, their interest in social causes and political causes are not of interest to anyone else. And I mean, that's sort of the tone of the Golden Globes. And then people get a little bit indignant and, you know, but there's sort of a common understanding that they're not going to take this thing too seriously. Um, now, one of the problems with the Oscars is there's so much dissent in the Oscars. There's so many looming questions right now about whether people are appropriately nominated, appropriately awarded, whether the deck is stacked uh, against women, uh, against uh, people of color. There's so many questions about that. It would be hard to have a host because I don't think there's a very high comfort level right now with free discussion uh, uh, at the Oscars. Um, So, you know, you have this event and they used to say that a billion people watch it all over the world. It's not clear to me anymore that a billion people watch it all over the world, but hundreds of millions of people watch it all over the world. And like 40 million people me watch it here in the United States. And, and you know, I mean, that's and, and then there's a lot of reportage about it and everything. You have an event 
where excellence is supposed to be celebrated. But you have pretty pervasive and hard to shake questions about whether, in fact, the playing field is level. Uh, and, and you'd think that this would be one of the easy places. I mean, you know, I'm going to talk about the NFL a, a little bit later, uh, which might be one of the harder places. But they also they have a huge problem uh, with head coaching. But it's everywhere. Right. I mean, it's in corporate America. Um, it, it's everywhere. Um, but in corporate America, you know, they're trying to make money. Maybe that comes first. In, in the NFL, they're trying to win games and they come up with rationales that tell them that this is the way they're going to win games with that white coach, not with that black coach. But this is, this is just a prize ceremony. <laughs> There's almost nothing at stake here except who gets the prize. Uh, you'd think this would be a place where they could, in a very meaningful way, address all this stuff, where they could, in a meaningful way, say, you know what? It just, it's weird if year after year we have these disparities. Um, so we should do something about that. And, and they have. They've tried. They, they brought it. I think they admitted about 500 new members and 250 of them were women and stuff like that. But that turns out to be a drop in the bucket, not something that can be used to, to fix this problem. All right. The number, 888-720-WNPR. I have a certain level of confidence that the phones work because there's a call on the board here. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Uh, what did you think of the Oscar nominations this morning? And here is Stephen in Farmington. Hi, Stephen. Oh, um, hi, uh, Colin. Um, can I call you Colin? Yeah, why not? What else are you going to yeah. call me? Oh, um, I don't know, Mr. McEnroe? Uh, that will never work. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so um, I was just um, listening in on um, about the Oscars thing, and um, the thing that's been going through my mind for a while now is just the uh, relevance of the Oscars in this day and age. And uh, th- this has been something I've been thinking about for a lot of things that um, have sort of stuck around in our culture for a little longer than I think is uh, necessary. You know, in this specific case with the Oscars, is it even relevant in the age of the Internet? Um, Because so many uh, institutions have um, sort of uh, overstayed their welcome, you know, with with things like being able to get the opinions of anyone at any time and anywhere um, in this day and age. Yeah, I mean, I guess the question is, I mean, one of the things that we know— Uh, I mean, this is a much more expansive conversation, but I'm happy to have at least part of it with you. One of the things that we know is the Internet is really great at helping people find each other, to have conversations. It's not a really great determiner of truth, right? One of the things that we know about the Internet is that the marketplace of ideas, as as articulated by uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes and others, doesn't really work very well. Things spread very quickly on the Internet, whether they're valid or not. So, I mean, the notion that the internet would create such a fertile environment for discussion, opinion, vetting, that it would supplant, you know, curated evaluations of the arts or or, or lots of other stuff. I mean, I just think it kind of doesn't work. I mean, you know, if the, if the, I mean, the internet has not made the Washington Post and the New York Times unnecessary. I mean, they have made the Washington Post and the New York Times and less well-established newspapers imperiled. <laughs> they have called their existence into danger, but they haven't called their existence into question or the validity of their existence into question. If anything, they've made it more, I mean, curation from outside the internet is, I think, if anything, more valuable now than it's ever been before because there's so much capacity 
capacity just through a culture of content makers who aren't answerable to anybody. To I mean, when we really saw, you know, we really looked looked behind, peeked peek behind the curtain to see how fake news was being spread. You know, it was being spread by people. A lot of times, it wasn't even being spread by ideologues. It was being spread by people who realized they could monetize stories that weren't true but were kind of appealing to a certain group of people. So, if you make up a story saying that Barack Obama's this is a real example, Barack Obama's mother-in-law is collecting a federal pension for having looked after the two Obama daughters during Obama's time in the White House. You can monetize that story. You can sell ads. You can, you know, you can actually make a lot of money by circulating that story. And, and it's not true. And, and there's no penalty for it either. Nobody will show up at your door and say, you did this thing that was not true. So I don't know. I, maybe I don't have the same faith in the internet that you do. I see it as an incredibly exciting and fertile tool. But has it replaced legacy culture? I don't know. Stephen, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think that um, uh, you do bring up a lot of good points. I, I think with the um, Oscars specifically, um, and this goes to a whole bit, a larger discussion over the media in general, um, the, the Oscars exist um, for curating and, and evaluating entertainment that exists mostly for entertainment's sake. And obviously there's the, um, of course, going to be um, the political side to that. Uh, everything is political. Um, but um, uh, with the media, um, things like news, uh, news outlets, um, things like uh, the Daily Mail or the Times or whatever, um, they exist to inform people of facts. Um, and when it comes to evaluating art, um, art is, I mean, it's become, you know, of course, art is subjective, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, well, I'm yeah. trying to think and talk at the same time. Well, I know it's hard. I have the same problem. All right. Let me just sort of, I, I'm just going to, um, I have to go out of, out of the segment pretty soon anyway. Let me just say that, this, that that's a whole story that hasn't been fully told yet. Right. So yeah, one argument has been, we did a whole show about this with A.O. Scott and some other people a few years ago, that, you know, who needs critics anymore? Uh, because everybody can have an opinion. Everybody can get their opinion viewed. If your opinions are really interesting and you create your own site, and you know, and then you can compete. But the reality is we do. We do like critics. We do need critics. Some of us do anyway. Um, in fact, I was having a conversation online with somebody about, you know, how, as Stephen suggests, these are subjective questions. There's no way that you could prove that The Irishman was the best movie of 2019. There's no way you could disprove it either. It's not, it's not that kind of empirical fact. Um, but what you can do is look at, for example, how critics have talked about these movies. And critics obligingly, even though most of them hate it, put out their 10 best lists at the end of the year. So one thing that uh, – who did this? Uh, I think it was Metacritic. There was some site that – I think it's Metacritic uh, – took all these 10 best lists and kind of compressed them and sorted them out and counted – first place votes, you know, higher than second place votes, blah, blah, blah. And Parasite came out ahead of all the other movies. So, and, and you know, I don't know, that's sort of, that could be an empty exercise or it could be an interesting ex exercise. But the truth is, yeah, I mean, when Manola Dargis says something about a movie, 
that means more to me than some guy named Stan, you know, who started his own site or something, because I know who Manila Dargis is, and I know, I respect her opinions about most movies. I know which kinds of movies she tends to favor. I know which kinds of movies she's kind of turned me on to in the past um, that I wouldn't have discovered otherwise. I know areas where she and I might disagree. So if you're trying to think about a movie, either before or after seeing the movie, that's the other part of it. I mean, a lot of people don't read reviews until after they've seen a movie. And then after you see a movie and you want to know what David Edelstein said and to see if it conforms with the way that you saw it or if it makes you think in a different way uh, about the movie that you just saw. So anyway, thanks for that topic anyway. We're going to take a little break. The number is 888-720-WNPR. And I want to mention that on February 9th, which is when the Oscars are, uh, there's a party that Peter Shapiro and I founded many years ago and then basically turned it over to me, much more capable people. Uh, It's for uh, AIDS in Connecticut, uh, and it's at the Spotlight Theaters uh, downtown in Front Street, which, by the way, are great theaters, a beautiful place to see a movie. But we take over this multiplex of of theaters, and we have a big party, and there's food, and there's a red carpet, and you get your picture taken in your fancy clothes or your thematic costume. Uh, And we'll give you information a little bit later about how to get tickets, but it really is a lot of fun and you know i mean if you get bored sitting there on your couch watching people thank their agents maybe you'd rather go to this party all right we'll be back after this hooray for hollywood that phony super coney hollywood they come from chilla coffee and paducas with their bazookas All right, so we're back, and we've got Brian, Chris, and Robert. Uh, I'm going to talk to all of you. Let me just quickly mention, because it popped into my mind uh, just now, we are moving our 8 p.m. rerun, which happens every single day, to 9 p.m. because uh, there's a new thing coming out at 7 uh, called World, the World, the World, I think. Um, something like that. Anyway, it sounds really interesting. <laughs> interesting. So uh, where we live is moving to our old time slot. We're moving to 9 o'clock. I don't know whose time slot that was. Uh, and so that's that. And the other thing is, you know, we do have this whole other show that we do and we will do for the remainder of the impeachment season. Uh, and it's called, pardon me, Another Damn Impeachment Show. And you know, I mean, because there's nobody else here to say it, I think it's really good. Uh, I think it's, I listen to everybody else's impeachment podcast, and I think ours is as good as anybody's. Um, and so that runs on Saturdays at noon, although we're going to have to find a new time slot for it if the impeachment trial starts happening on Saturdays, which it looks like it will. Uh, and But it's also available as a podcast. And we are also going to run this week's episode tomorrow, because one thing that we feel is that people aren't finding this show yet, particularly like the people who listen to the Colin McEnroe show, haven't discovered Pardon Me yet. That's why Marge is calling up from Lebanon asking a question that we have, we've actually addressed a couple of times on Pardon Me. So we're trying to get you interested. So it's going to be uh, this past week's episode is tomorrow. I think you're going to find the conversation, particularly about the war, pretty interesting, or not the war, whatever the heck this is we're doing with Iran. All right, back to the Oscars. Our number is 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Here, let's start with Brian in Wallingford. Hi, Brian. Hey, Colin, how are you? Just fine. Uh, At the risk of sounding too white. Yeah. That's a great start. Uh, 
I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions. I picked up uh, on your show about 11 after 1, and you were saying at that moment, nearly at that moment, the uh, nominees for Best Actor Male Best Actor Male were 82 years old down to the uh, young kid, Brad Pitt, 56, whatever he is. Mm-hmm. I was wondering well, how is that germane to the conversation of exclusion of uh, people of color or women, one, and two, are you imputing or are others imputing that – the voters for these various categories have racial or gender bias against these people, or are the actors just not good enough? I'm just curious in all of those things. All right, so you got sort of two separate questions. Let me just deal with them separately. Yeah. In terms of the age thing, I just I think it's interesting. So the ages of the uh, of the best supporting actors are 82, 79, 76, 63, 56. I think another problem that the Academy has typically had, although they've been trying to address this too, is their membership is really old. Um, and so it's not that I have any problem with any of those actors. I thought Anthony Hopkins was terrific as ex Pope Benedict or whatever we're going to call him. It's also just great that Benedict and Francis are having a public feud right now while both of those actors, Jonathan Price and, and, and Anthony Hopkins, are under consideration for Oscars. But anyway, and you know, so Al Pacino, 79. I love Al Pacino. I thought he was good as Jimmy Hoffa. I thought Pesci was pretty good. He's 76. Uh, Tom Hanks, I haven't seen his Mr. Rogers yet. He's 63. Brad Cliff, I thought Cliff uh, was, I thought was pretty good in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's not, it, the question is, you know, is this another example of an institutionalized paradigm that can't be easily upset or challenged? Is, there's, if, is there no room for a young actor between the ages of... something? Yeah. Why is it the case that the age is a factor? If, if uh, the 82-year-old... Uh, who's the 82-year-old? I forgot. Anthony Hopkins. Okay, if Anthony Hopkins were... Well, you're saying he's great, so I buy, I buy that because he is great. Uh, I didn't see that movie. But supposing these actors were a lot younger, would it be somehow less objectionable? No, what I'm saying is, look, if there were two or three guys who were kind of old and a couple of young people, you wouldn't say a word about this. The fact that they're all kind of old makes you wonder, once again, uh, are they willing to consider younger people giving exciting uh, performances? Or is this a process of kind of validating people that they already know, just piling on an existing set of norms rather than thinking creatively and artistically? I'm just bringing that up. It's kind of interesting that they're all so old in that category. Now, the other question that you're asking is an impossible one to answer, right? There's no way that we can say that Little Women is a better movie than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean, there's no objective way to resolve that question. But it seems to me that if you already know you have a problem, if you've already been through five years of criticism about how non-representative you've been, if you know that also opportunities have been a problem, and you want to stage a spectacle that, I mean, this isn't an election for president of the United States. It's an award ceremony. So you want to celebrate talent. You want to celebrate creativity. You want to celebrate the art that you're a part of. Maybe you look at it and think, you know, it's weird that it's so many white men because it's clearly not the case that the other half of the population, no, the other 60, 65% of the population isn't as talented as they are. There's something else that's wrong. Some of it has to do with the opportunities that 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 part of the population has gotten typically. That's something that you certainly can't address. The, the uh, opportunities. I mean, that we you want to you want a couple hundred years. Maybe you can do something about that. But my my point about that situation is the fact that uh, if these people are honestly voting for somebody who happens to be a white male, okay, but 
well, gee whiz, we want to bring brown people, black people, and women in. Forget about that honest vote. I'm going to vote for a woman because we want women and uh, people of color in. That's one way to look at it. You see what I mean? Yeah, but once again, there's no way that you can objectively prove that one one is better than the other. What you're doing is voting an opinion. So then the other question becomes, should some affirmative step be taken to, to deal with this? For example, let's look at the NFL, which has a gigantic problem right now with head coaches. And it's a similar the kind... Yeah, there's I been, read the article in the Times yesterday. Yeah, there have been lots of articles about this. So they have, a, they have a problem, and they know that they have a problem. I mean, one of the ways that they tried to address this problem, and it hasn't worked, is the so-called Rooney Rule that says when you're hiring a head coach, you are required to interview at least one minority candidate. And, and we're seeing how that's working out. They're going backwards. They have fewer black coaches now than they did a few years ago. And there's a lot of reasons for that that also have to do with opportunity, because NFL teams typically hire offensive coordinators, uh, to be the next head coach or pick somebody out of the college ranks, major college ranks. If there are more white males in those jobs, it makes it, again, harder for the black candidates to rise to the surface. Uh, that, that whole situation stinks when the uh, percentage of players in the NFL is, I don't know how many, uh, uh, what the percentage it's, is, it's se- 70% black yeah, or whatever yeah, se- 70 to 75% uh, black population. And so, you know, well, one of the I things mean, you do is you say, okay, we've got another problem here, and we can either just live with it and we can try to pretend to ourselves, for example, that we just do this so that, w- that we can win more games. Although statistical analysis, uh, analyses of how black head coaches in the NFL do in terms of winning indicate that that's not a valid argument, that hiring a black coach would not make you less likely to win. Um, but you can make that argument anyway. All we care about is winning. We're going to get the best possible person. Uh, or in the case of the Cleveland Browns, we're going to get the worst possible person because we don't ever want to <laughs> want to win. This is another case, by the way, where they had a white candidate and a black candidate, and yesterday they picked a white candidate, or maybe it was this morning. But um, but you, you've got a problem, and you can either say, yeah, you know, it'll take 200 years to fix because the pipeline is so bad. The pipeline isn't right. Or let's try to fix it right now, you know, because these things, this is football. This is the Academy Awards. This isn't neurosurgery. This isn't a thing where patients are going to die if you do if you do it differently this is the thing where you can sort of say there's something wrong with this picture you know and and i i i'm familiar with the argument that oh you know maybe these guys are just the best but i mean that's a subjective argument to begin with maybe maybe they're not the best or maybe it would be worth making an affirmative effort to say well these are just the nominations. Maybe we'll decide that, yeah, we'll pick the person who's best to win the award. But maybe we should, we should make sure that the nominations, you know, can include a more diverse group of candidates. And you could do that very easily with some affirmative rule changes. It's done in lots of other facets of life. I'm amazed that we can't do it now. All right. Let me uh, grab one or two more calls, and then we'll have to go to another break. This show is flying fast. Here's Robert in West Hartford. Hi, Robert. Mr. Macro, I just want to say that, pardon me, uh, another damn appreciate show. is a great show. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed it. When, does it, when does it air again? Just for, well, We're um, going to re-air I, it in this time slot tomorrow. We will air Saturday's uh, episode. Perfect. Uh, for, for your consideration, uh, and perhaps uh, reputation, in, uh, in thinking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, one could perhaps read it as a radically conservative movie. Um, they kill the hippies, the macho men win, and neighborliness is held as a very high value. 
Um, am I missing something there? No, but be careful with spoilers. I don't think you've been, been it hasn't been too bad so far, but there are a lot of people who haven't it's seen this movie. <laughs> uh, but, uh, well, yeah, I mean, so that you're, that's the question you're asking me. Is this conservative? Yeah, it, it, essentially the thrust of it, it is there the subtext that, you know, they, the, the hippies die at the end. They're all portrayed as degen- degenerate. It's a it's a really interesting question. I'm just going to stop you because I'm scared you're going to spoil something. I will get in a lot of trouble if you do. Okay, so I'm going to stop you there. I think that's a really interesting question. The question being, if you've seen the movie, what's Tarantino's take on everybody involved here, right? Uh, what's what's Tarantino saying about these two guys, uh, these two the, the these two main male characters, uh, an actor who's kind of on the downside of his career, uh, and a stuntman whose body is gradually going to get to be too old to do all this stuff. Um, you know, is he? Uh, and and the third character is basically Sharon Tate, uh, uh, a woman we know from the perspective of the president to be a doomed person. What is he saying about these three people? And I don't think that that's an easy question to answer. I mean, it seems like um, like for a brief moment, these old Hollywood guys are reasserting their temporary dominance or their ability to deal with a situation or something along those lines, especially Brad's character, right? So you could say that, but to me, Tarantino is all about nostalgia. I mean, what isn't it? I mean, it's conservatism and nostalgia are obviously very linked concepts, but they're not 100% overlapping concepts. So Tarantino traffics in nostalgia. He'd like things to be more the way they were. You know, he liked the way things looked back then. I mean, the dashboard of a car uh, or a phonograph arm going down on a record. You know, he just, he liked that. It looked better. And and he's an obsessive curator of all that stuff, too. You know, he makes sure everything looks exactly the way he it did in 1969. Um, and so I think it's more about that, that, yeah, here are these guys... You know, we celebrate things when they're dying. I say this all the time. So they're part of a dying Hollywood culture. They're going to be replaced by something else. Um, And we know that. We look at that and we see, you know, uh, we see Sharon Tate in a Dean Martin, Matt Helm movie. We just know that's all going to give way, at least temporarily, to um, a late 60s and 1970s era of a very different kind of movie making. Uh, and, And I think all Tarantino is really saying is, wow, that's too bad. I miss all that stuff. You know, I miss all that stuff. I miss that kind of guy. You know, I miss that kind of woman. Uh, I miss that kind of culture. Uh, and so I'm going to give it one last opportunity in a fictional context, a very fictional context, context to flourish. And if that's conservatism, I don't think it's conservatism in the sense that we use those terms now. But if it's it's conservatism, conservatism in the sense of wishing things hadn't changed as much as they did, then I would say that to me that's his message in that movie. But that was a really interesting question too. Thank you for it. All right, we'll we'll take a break here. I don't know what will happen when we come back. We might be done with Oscars. It'll depend on what you do. You can call up about anything. I still have to answer Marge's question too. So eight 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 seven two zero WNPR. Or 888, if you don't like the whole alphanumeric thing, 888-720-9677. No alarms have sounded. No lights have flashed. The phones didn't work for a little while, but Gene Amatruda fixed them because he always fixes them. He always fixes everything here. 
What if there were no Gene Amatruda? We'd just be dead silence. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe, Betsy Kaplan, and me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Adam Sandler. Talk about an Oscar snub. Make sure you never miss an episode of this show or Pardon Me, another damn impeachment show. Grab your toaster oven by its outside handles and say, Alexa, subscribe me to one of those podcast things. We've been told that'll be sufficient, but it may result in slower hot pocket cooking times. And now, back to Colin. Right. But we do we do encourage you, particularly if you have a busy life and you don't know when you're going to be able to listen to us. And, and the truth is, we're like moving around all the time these days. We get preempted by impeachment stuff. Uh, we're moving to a nine o'clock uh, rebroadcast uh, on a daily basis. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen with Pardon Me. We may start we may lose our noon time slot. Well, of course, we might if they start at one every day. We could have like the best lead in too. So, so yeah, that would be good uh, if you were to uh, subscribe to our podcast uh, on any of your podcasting platforms. All right, here's uh, Jim in Newtown. I just want to say once again, the numbers are eight 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 seven two zero WNPR eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven. Jim, you have the floor. Hi, Colin. Thank you. Um, uh, you were talking about film earlier and. Uh since you invited any people to talk and call in about any topic, uh, I was curious if you'd seen the, the Netflix documentary Unacknowledged by Dr. Stephen Greer, which, while it has its obvious flaws, presents some of the very compelling testimony and evidence from retired Air Force people. And, uh, you know, it touches on the current uh, footage that you can easily see on, on, on YouTube and that the government has confirmed is real footage of some very strange phenomenon I'm just curious if you've seen the the movie and what your thoughts are about UFOs. I haven't seen the movie. However, we did uh, a whole show about this, uh, including about that footage that you're talking about. We did a whole show episode September 10th of this past year, 2019. It's called, Are We Ready to uh, Accept That UFOs Are Real? Question mark. So if you're interested in this, I would encourage you, if you just go to WNPR.org and, sure. and, and you can track it down and you can see. I, I mean, what I think is that, you know, when you watch some of the Air Force pilot footage, it really is, I mean, it's clear what they think. And they're, they're Air Force pilots. And so yeah. they're not wackos who are sitting around right, right. drinking too much coffee and, and getting excited about this. They're seeing stuff that makes no sense to them, given what they know about all this. So I should say that we, we talked to Leslie Keene, who's an investigative journalist who actually helps uh, with the New York Times coverage of all of this stuff. We also talked to Avi Loeb, who's the chair of the astronomy department at Harvard. Not so much about that, but because there was this thing that was uh, moving around out there called uh, Umamama uh, uh, that he felt had to be a UFO. It's this enormous um, space object that didn't really move, he thought, the way anything should move unless it had a propulsion system. And we also uh, talked to the guy who's the state director of the uh, Mutual UFO Network here in Connecticut. So, I, you know, and the other thing I will say is, and, I, and Jim, you should get excited about this, Amy Klobuchar has said that she will declassify all UFO documents if she's elected president. Will that be safe for her? I'm, you know, I've heard that some presidents, the problem is that uh, what I'm hearing and what the, the film seems to document very well is that these black op programs are so classified that even there's no oversight. And he's not talking about billions of our tax dollars. 
maybe it's all on the up and up and, and no one is, but you know, there's, there's some concern expressed that, well, what if there's a really great beneficial energy, uh, uh, source that could help us transition from fossil fuels that's being, you know, I don't want to get all conspiracy minded, but I've also heard that like Clinton pushed hard for this and stopped because he was a little concerned about his well-being, you know? So I think it's an important issue for the election. I really want to see whoever wins really push for a total declassification. And I'd like to see something in the Senate, Congress, legislation to let us see where these billions upon billions upon billions of our tax dollars are going into these black programs because it's time. All right, it's time. Thanks for your call. I said you could call about everything. I think I feel like Bill Clinton had bigger problems. Unless Ken Starr actually was an extraterrestrial, which I am completely prepared to contemplate, uh, if not immediately accept, um, I would say Bill Clinton's problems <laughs> probably exceeded, and I think UFOs were probably secondary or tertiary on this list of problems. All right, uh, here's uh, Jack from Boston. I have to make sure I leave time to answer Marge's question, too. But here's a Jack from Boston. You're on the air. Yeah, hi, Colin. Uh, so I'm scanning the nominees uh, online, and uh, it's clear, and it's almost the case every year, that none of these come from Disney or any of its the properties it's acquired in the, in the last half dozen years, right? Mm-hmm. Marvel, Pixar, uh, uh, Star Wars, etc. So the Oscars in spite of the squabbles about the gender and racial representation, which are valid, uh, in a more meta sense, are so important, just like the Globes are. Because, and this harkens to Scorsese's comment of a couple weeks ago, right, Mm -hmm. that Marvel movies are not real uh, true cinema. I don't know exactly the phrase he used, but mm-hmm. you know what I'm talking about. He said it was closer about. to a theme park, yeah. So that, in, in a meta sense, the Oscars, the Globes, all those champion movies that uh, hold back the tide of all of us being inundated by movies for teenagers and kids. Now, I will... Uh, that's a generality, but, because I know you love Toy Story 4, mm-hmm. um... <laughs> But nonetheless, uh, there's a general trend, 7 out of 10 of 2019's movies, uh, of the biggest box office came from Disney. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a great point, and I think there's another yeah. point behind it, which is that, so, you know, how do you establish yourself uh, as a big player? Well, one way is you can just be Disney, right? They're already a big player. They acquire uh, other properties. Uh, they get even bigger. Um, the other way that you can do it is, as I mean, Netflix, which has dominated the nominations this year, uh, has decided, well, another way that you can do it is by being... Uh, the kind of company that does win a lot of awards and does husband, uh, does shepherd along certain kinds of high-quality projects, whether it's Marriage Story or The Irishman or The Two Popes or or whatever. You know, you're going to be the home for that kind of stuff. You're going to be walking up and and getting prizes uh, on Oscar night. That's going to call attention to one of the ways that you define yourself and define your mission in the world. And, and, And I think that's true. And, you know, I don't think Disney cares about Oscars. I mean, yeah, I mean, Star Wars, 
the rise of Skywalker is not going to get any major acting or directing or writing Oscars. They might get some, they'll get some technical Oscars because that's what that is about. You know, it's not a really particularly good movie. Sorry. Um, all right. So let me just, oh, I said I was going to ask answer Marge's question. Okay. I've got a minute left for you, Gwen, in Montague, New York, because I like your topic. Montag. Montag. Oh. Mont- oh, Thank okay. You. Okay, what about Joaquin Phoenix? Why haven't you mentioned him? He's one of the younger actors up for the Academy Award, and he's a great actor. He won the Golden Globe. Right. I think, I think we have an interesting situation this year where two performances in movies that, for the most part, people didn't necessarily like all that much, uh, have a very good chance of winning Best Actor. So uh, I think um, that, uh, that, first of all, Joaquin Phoenix does have a pretty good chance or, have, you know, a better than average chance of winning Best Actor, even though Joker freaks a lot of people out. In some ways, it could be even identified as part of the phenomenon that bothers women who are bothered by Greta Gerwig not getting a nomination when the director of Joker did. Because, you know, it's it puts the spotlight on an incel kind of guy, right? So this is the kind of guy that you could easily argue is a threat to women um, and maybe a threat to everybody in the case of him. But it's a celebration of a certain kind of guy who's really, you know, be made, been made visible as a very specific kind of misogynistic, dangerous to women kind of person. But it's also not a necessarily flattering portrait or an endorsement of that kind of person. And Phoenix is amazing. I wouldn't have a problem with him winning Best Actor. I think he's got a pretty good chance, maybe a better than average chance. And I think a similar thing could be said about Renee Zellweger, not that her a portrayal of Judy Garland is the is a portrayal of someone who would be threatening to anybody. But the movie's not that great, you know. I mean, it's okay, it's, but it's not a particularly good movie. Um, but she's amazing. She's absolutely amazing in it. Uh, I I would have no hesitation about handing her the best actor. Uh, Best Actress, I guess, uh, award right now, although that's not fair because there's a couple of those performances I still haven't seen. But she's incredible. But it's sort of a movie people didn't like that much, but then she was great. So it's similar in each category. All right, that's all we have time for. I didn't answer Marge's question. Marge, that means you have to start listening to Pardon Me. That's where we'll explain it to you. Yeah, that's the ticket.